Okay. So we're in a series called From Fantasy to Reality, and this is about how our imaginations are, are renewed and set free. Um, we learned in the first week, two weeks ago, that our imaginations are a gift from God. They're a God-given gift to see what is unseen. Uh, so, uh, so whether we are uh, making our meal plan for the week, or uh, we are coming up with an idea to grow our division at work, um, or thinking about grad school, which program we're going to choose, or even engaging in memories that involve a family member. In all of those cases, we're using uh, a powerful capacity we have to see the unseen, and that capacity has been given to us by God. Now, the imagination is much like a window that looks out to a beautiful mountain range uh, that has a kind of a, a, a very uh, beautiful river at the, at, the, at the bottom of the mountain. And if, if, uh, if you have a, a, a view of that kind of a, a reality, um, after a while you're going to want to go outside the house and actually climb the mountain, maybe gather your friends or maybe kayak down the river. Our imaginations are like that window that allow us to see um, something really beautiful and good and true. And uh, what we've done, however, with our imaginations, as, as we learned last week, is that a lot of times we put a mirror where that window should go. And instead of seeing beyond ourselves, something good, true, and beautiful beyond ourselves that has the capacity to stretch us and challenge us and grow us, we actually end up just looking at ourselves and using our imaginations to see the resolution of our desires and our pain. And uh, it makes us smaller, makes us uh, petty, but more importantly, we, we, we miss out on the opportunity to engage with God and his world in love. What we do, what we end up doing is we end up playing old tapes uh, and uh, engaging with ourselves and shadow boxing and, and being denied the opportunity, denying ourselves the opportunity to grow, to change, to engage and connect with God and his people and his world in a way that will, that will shape us and shape reality in loving ways. So we put a window where the mirror should go. Um, and what God does, uh, what he wants to do, and what we are seeking in this series is for him to actually, uh, through Jesus Christ, take that mirror away and call us out, call us to see the mountains, see the river, and call us out to the mountains and river um, so that in the, in the process, our desires and our pain are resolved in the person of Jesus um, rather than in our own private theater. Um, and, uh, and he brings resolution to our life, and he stretches us and grow us in ways that we can't even imagine. But it does start in our imagination. So last week, first week we talked about how imagination is a gift. We look at Genesis 1. And then last week we talked about glory fantasies, and we looked at the, the person of Eve um, becoming like God in a way that was unauthorized, in a spectacular way that ultimately pushed out true goodness um, to, in order to get a, a false greatness. So I encourage you to listen to either one of those sermons if you haven't already. This week we're going to look at the story of Cain and Abel, and our theme is revenge fantasies. Revenge fantasies. I've been reading a fascinating novel uh, about revenge. It's a story, uh, maybe you've read it, it's a story of a, of a young man that like, you would just love. His name is uh, Edmund Dantes. Uh, and, uh, and he's coming into the prime of his life. The novel starts with him... Uh, he's about to be made captain. He's about to get a huge promotion. He's kind. He's loving. He's hardworking. Um, he's about to get married 
to a young woman named Mercedes, and she is, unlike the car, um, she's, she's poor, and, uh, she, but she's beautiful um, in a way the car could never be. And, um, and so um, his promotion is going to allow him to take care of his beautiful new bride and his aging father, who's in poverty right now, but is this most gentle and loving man. Um, and so along the way, at his, like, at his like, engagement party, uh, th- men come together to conspire uh, to, to convict him of treason, to get him put in prison, all because they want different things. One guy wants his, his fiance, another guy wants his job, and another guy's just trying to protect himself and his political future. And they succeed in getting him put in prison, and he has no idea. He's so innocent, he has no idea what's happening to him. He's one of these guileless, really loving, gentle people, but he gets put in prison. Um, and um, he gets put in solitary confinement for six years, loses hope, tries to kill himself, uh, but then meets up with, uh, has a chance encounter with a fellow prisoner who's a, he's an old Italian priest. Um, and, uh, and this old Italian priest educates him, uh, uh, befriends him, and then helps him see, hey, you were framed. He helps him put the pieces together, and he realizes, oh my goodness, there was a conspiracy that got me here. This is not just something random. And then the priest tells him, hey, um, there's a fortune that belongs to me. I want to share it with you. Eventually, Edmund Dantes escapes from prison. Uh, His mentor passes away, which gives him an escape. He finds the fortune, and then he puts his, he he goes and he confirms the story. He realizes, I was framed. And so my, my fiancé was taken from me, my job was taken from me, and then he finds out his father, his gentle father, died in poverty uh, because of all of this. And so uh, what happens is he, he escapes from prison, but he does not escape from his resentment. And, and then he lives in a revenge fantasy, and he carries it out in the most delicious way throughout the course of the book. A really beautiful, you know, it's like poetic justice times ten. It's incredible what he can think up. And he, in the process, he becomes uh, the Count of Monte Cristo. He takes on this persona, and that's the title of the book, The Count of Monte Cristo. Edmond Dantes, the young, innocent, uh, 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 you know, young man, morphs and, and transforms into a shadow of himself uh, and becomes the Count of Monte Cristo. And what the Count of Monte Cristo does is he takes on justice for himself. He becomes a one-man justice machine. And what he does is he frames the framers. The people that framed him, he frames them in a way that like, is even more humiliating and exposing um, than how they framed him. The Count of Monte Cristo wins trust with those who won his trust, and then he betrays them. So he gets in with them and is friendly with them and earns their trust and gets beyond their barriers, and then he frames them and betrays them, just like he was betrayed. He drives to insanity the people who nearly drove him to suicide. So he, he carries this out in this way. It's, it's incredible and delicious and beautiful. It's, it's uh, the most exquisite story of revenge, I think, that is written right now. But, uh, so the Count of Monte Cristo, Edmond Dantes, becomes like God in a way God has not asked him to do, in a way that God has not asked him to be. He becomes like God in his uh, uh, pursuit of revenge. Now, when we are wronged unjustly, and we are wronged unjustly, uh, we are tempted to curve in on ourselves. We are tempted to do so through revenge fantasies. Um, And this will imprison us, 
and uh, it will do great damage to our characters. We'll become a shadow of ourselves if, if, uh, if we ruminate on and marinate in these fantasies. So the question today is, how is God going to renew us when we've been wronged? It feels so real. It draws us in. We want revenge. We want to get back at the person who got to us. How do we be free of that? How can we become free of that? Uh, that's the question that we're going to ask today. How can we not miss out on the opportunity to take part in God's grander, richer, more beautiful story? Um, we're going to look at that today, um, first of all, by unpacking the logic of revenge. We'll do that by looking at the life of Cain. And then we'll look at, we'll contrast that with the logic of grace in the teaching and person of Jesus. And finally, what, what does that mean for our imaginations? How can we then exercise our imaginations accordingly? So turn with me to Genesis 4. This is on um, page 3, page, pages 3 and 4 of your bulletin. So Cain is the son of Adam and Eve. And he's the brother of Abel. That's who he is. And that means that he bears the blessing of God. He bears the image of God. He's called to steward and work the, the world in ways that bring order and life and justice. Um, so he has a, even though his parents have sinned and he is experiencing that consequence, nevertheless, God is still active and at work in his life. And we'll see that God actually comes up to him directly and, and engages him. You know, it's, it's really remarkable. Um, so Cain still has the, the mantle of son of God. You, you, are, you are God's created son put here on this world to be a prince and a priest in God's world to do good work. And, um, and his imagination should be going there. His imagination should be seeing who God is and should be seeing who he is, should absorb that story. But instead... Um, his, his imagination is captured by what our imaginations are often captured by, which is the logic of revenge, and that has three parts. Part one of the logic of revenge is it's not fair. It's not fair. Let's read uh, uh, about Cain. Um, verse three. You see verse three there? Okay. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Now imagine what would it be like to be Cain? If you're going to have fruit, if you know anything about fruit and the process of producing it, minus miracle grow, um, it's tough. It's hard work. It takes time. It takes planning. It takes sacrifice. Imagine you bring the fruit to God thinking, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do, and God's going to respond to me in a certain way, and this is going to be great. And then verse 4, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And here's the part that would probably feel unfair if we were in Cain's position. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Let's stop there. No regard for, for, for Cain and his offering. No regard. Not even like, hey, you get a C. You know what I mean? Not even like, hey, okay, this is a good start. We're going to work from here and move our way up, Cain. Um, you know, this project is like, okay, it's mediocre. But it's like no regard. Like, I reject the fruit that you brought. Now, if we were in Cain's position, let's not judge him. It probably would feel kind of unfair. It would be frustrating. God had regard for Abel. He didn't have regard for me. 
Um, and this sense of unfairness flooded Cain's soul. And you know what? Uh, it's going to feel like that a lot of times, whether it's fair or not in our life. So there are, there's unfairness all around. Life is unfair. It's one of the first things that a child should learn. Life is not equitable. Life is not fair. Not everyone gets the same advantages. Not everyone gets the same education. Not everyone gets the same nest egg. Not everyone uh, gets the same love. Different people have different advantages, and those unfair advantages lead to more unfair advantages. You can use your unfair advantages to make the world less fair, and it happens all the time. And when you are poor, when you are in poverty, you are the most powerless to change that. You are the most powerless to change that, so you receive the least, and also it's harder to get more advantages, harder to get more money, harder to get more friends, harder to get better jobs. That's what it is to be in poverty, is you're in a cycle where you cannot get into the system where the unfair advantages work for you. Life is unfair. Just observe, uh, observe how this works at your workplace and in your neighborhood, and even in the educational system in, in, in our own city. It's not fair, and that is how it is. That's how it is. Now, what we can do about that is a totally different uh, but, unconnected, uh, but connected uh, topic. We're not going to fully go into that today. Well, let's just make the observation that we are going to experience unfairness a lot in our life. And, and it could be true. Um, people can be unkind to us. People can steal from us. Um, people can lie to us and manipulate us. Um, systems can work against us. Uh, and, and we can see that and we, we can feel that. And it is okay that you feel angry in response. In fact, if you don't, there's a book that I brought with me called Forgiveness, in, Forgiveness is a Choice by Robert Enright. And he says that mo what most people do when they experience unfairness is they don't admit that they're angry. So they use other forms. It's hard to be angry. And so they, people use other workarounds to not feel the anger of the injustice. And what ends up happening is it comes out in other ways. You play out revenge, but you, just, you, don't, you don't admit it to yourself. You're trying to get back at somebody because you're not admitting that you're angry. All this to say, saying it's not fair, it's not a bad thing to say that. It's not a bad thing to feel that. That's not where it ends. Um, at any rate, um, are you angry? It's not wrong to be angry. It's not wrong to process that anger. It's healthy to process that anger. We'll talk about that later. Uh, the problem is when our imagination holds on to the disparity with a vice grip and resolves to make it right and moves to the second bit of logic of revenge, which is, I'm going to make it fair through your pain. So it starts with it's not fair. When we start to curve in on a revenge fantasy, it's I'm going to make it fair through your pain. You make me feel rejected? Oh, I'm going to make you feel rejected. I can dream up some great ways that that can happen. You're going to steal from me? Oh, I am going to get back at you. I'm going to think up some way that, that karma gets back at you. We, we think through how karma is going to come in and just deliciously, boom, get back at you. Um, there's a German word for this. Schadenfreude. Dictionary says that schadenfreude means pleasure derived by someone from, by, pleasure derived from someone from another person's misfortune. 
And the no, there's a note in the dictionary that was really interesting. It's derived from the German words harm and pleasure. And it means the joy that we sometimes cannot help but experience when we hear about another's misfortune, like the downfall of an enemy. Schadenfreude. It's joy at someone else's pain. I was thinking this morning about a way I've experienced this, and there's been a couple times where I'm on the freeway, and there's someone who, like, gets up right behind me and, like, flashing their lights, like, get out of the way, you know? I have to double the speed limit or I'm going to die. And so, you know, they're, like, stressing me out, and they're stressed out, and they (laughs) pass me, and... and, um, there's, you know, at least one time, maybe two times where, like, I've seen that car again, but pulled over by a cop. <laughs> That's schadenfreude. Joy at someone else's pain, especially the one who caused you pain. Where you're like, yes. All right. So schadenfreude feels good going down, but it's like Red Bull for the soul. Um, it's not good for you. It's not good for you. And if you drink enough of it, you're going to become a monster. And you're going to become a shadow of yourself. So I'm going to make it fair through your pain. And what that does is we feel strong and vindicated. We feel strong and vindicated because we can see that our enemy felt what we felt. Maybe a little extra on the side. Okay? So it's about doing good, enforcing the good, taking the pound of flesh where, where it must be taken, okay? Um, so Cain is um, uh, about to carry out a secret revenge fantasy in secret. He's going to lure his brother away, and he's going to make it fair through, Cain, through Abel's pain. Let's look at the second part of verse 5. Cain was angry and his face fell. So what was he thinking about when his face fell? What was he thinking about when he was angry? It's fair to say that he was thinking through what he was going to do to make it fair. Now the Lord engages his imagination. And this is where, this is where uh, we can be called out of our own prison, our own resentments. He says to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? He's reminding him um, of, his, of his identity. You're, you're a son of God. Don't go there, Cain. Come up, come out. Imagine restoration with me. And, if you, and he, the Lord continues, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Just like it crouched at your mother's door, Cain. Sin is, is, is it wants to lure you away. Your enemy is, is inviting you to become like God in a way that God hasn't asked you to. It's crouching at your door, inviting you into a cycle of revenge. Um, It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. And I just want to say to you today that if you have bitterness in your soul and if you have revenge in your soul, the Lord's promise is the same to you. There is hope. Sin desires to master you. Revenge and uh, desires to perpetuate itself in you. But it does not have to rule over you. There is hope beyond that bitterness. There is hope beyond the hurt that you feel and the injustice that you have experienced. Cain does not listen. His imagination goes, no, I don't want to listen to that. And no, I will not see the unseen good, true, and beautiful. I'm going to see something else that feels more real. And it's my pain of the injustice. Verse 8, Cain spoke to his brother Abel. What did he speak about? Well, doesn't say. But soon after they went into the field. 
Maybe he said, hey, let's go to the field together. Uh, and, so, and so then Cain rose up against his brother in secret and killed him in secret. Which leads us to the third, the third movement of revenge. The first two are in our minds. The third is in reality. Okay? The first one is it's not fair. The second one is I'm going to make it fair through your pain. And the third one is duck. Duck. Because the consequences will follow. The con- revenge never ends with you. Something's coming back. And, and immediately the Lord shows up where there's death and he says to Cain, where's your Abel, your brother? Cain deflects, I, I, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He, now, now he's moving to deception, which often revenge does involve. Uh, involved deception, covering up. He's covering up his guilt in the same way that he covered up uh, Abel's body. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Which gives us a sense that the Lord is just. The Lord can see the hidden injustices. The Lord sees injustices that uh, perhaps only we can see. Or that we don't see. He's a just God and he can see when, when, when evil has been, has been carried out in the world. He sees the unjust systems that we operate in and sometimes that we perpetuate. And he's bringing truth where there is hiddenness. And, um, and the Lord says, Abel's blood is crying out to me. Abel's blood is testifying against you. And if you continue to read in the chapter, you'll see that uh, all of a sudden Cain realizes, um, my punishment is greater than I can bear. I have a punishment for my revenge, and it's more than I can bear. He's already ducking. He's ducking. He's gotten his revenge his sweet revenge, but then he has to duck, he has to hide, as does the Count of Monte Cristo. He has his own private island that he has to hide out in. Duck, because it's going to get worse. Duck, because your children and your great-grandchildren may take up your cause, and you won't be able to stop them. Duck, because the consequences are coming back at you. So we can even see it, just turn the page to uh, page four. Okay. What happens down the generational line? Let's look at verse 23. Lamech. Lamech is, is, is a direct descendant of Cain. Now look how revenge has so worked its way into his identity. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, and so he's going to do some bragging. Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. He's so pompous. I have killed a man for wounding me. A young man for striking me. You see how revenge has worked its way into Lamech's identity? No, no one gets near me. No one gets near the great Lamech. Remember we talked about the Wizard of Oz with, uh, last week? Lamech is somewhat like the Wizard of Oz. No one gets near this great man. You, you insult me, I'm, I'm going to come at you hard. And this cycle of revenge is going to continue with Lamech. Cain has to duck. So that doesn't blow back and hit him. And there is real consequences to carrying out revenge fantasies, which lead to revenge realities. So it's not fair. I'm going to make it fair through your pain. Duck. Evil perpetuates itself, my friends. Revenge perpetuates itself. Bitterness perpetuates itself. That is the nature of evil. It breeds. 
It finds creative expression. It gets more intense. So the cycle repeats. It's not fair. I'm going to make it fair through your pain. Duck, repeat, and rinse over and over and over again. Only it gets bigger. Now, that's the logic of revenge. It's a self-defeating logic. It is an anti-human logic. It's an anti-life logic. And it will imprison us. Even if we only live in it emotionally and mentally, it will imprison us. God's logic of grace sets us free. It stops the madness, stops the perpetuation of evil. It is an escape. It is a true escape from the hell of revenge. And revenge is a hell that never stops. God's logic of grace is different. It's not unjust. It is just. But it sets us free from bitterness, being our own private agents of private justice. So, here's the logic of grace. Let's turn to Matthew 5, which uh, will point us in the direction of this logic. The logic of grace starts here. Number one, it's not just. It's not just. Fairness is a two-dimensional way of looking at reality. You get this much, I get this much. You get this advantage, I get this advantage. Eye for an eye. eye. You took my eye, I take your eye. You took my tooth, I took your tooth. Two-dimensional. Justice is so much richer. Justice is so much deeper. Justice is about the, uh, the restoration of relationships. Justice is about systems being changed. Justice is about uh, an entire culture being changed so that revenge is not uh, a controlling reality anymore. But forgiveness and love and restitution is a reality. So um, God is a just judge. As he saw Cain's blood, he sees reality. He sees what's going on. And he understands the situation in a deeper way. So look, look what Jesus lists in um, uh, verses 38 and following. Um, public shaming. You get slapped in the face. That was a shaming that was not a fight. It was, it, was, it, was a, it was a transfer of shame. Okay, that's an injustice. Extortions. Hey, give me your coat. Uh, uh, and uh, forced marches. For, hey, you must come with me uh, one mile. These are all things that are, that are unjust. And he also gives categories for people who do them. He calls them enemies in verse, uh, verses 43 and 44. You see that on page 6? Your enemies. They, he's a category for enemies, and we talked about this earlier this summer from Romans 12. And he, he also refers to them as evil. Verse 45, and unjust. So God does not turn a blind eye, uh, and, and he is not a, he's not an aging grandfather that just tells you to just be nice to people. He says, no, 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 I see evil, I see enemies, and I see injustice. So it's not just. The second movement of, of the logic of grace is, I'm going to make it just through my pain. I'm going to make things just through my pain. So uh, this is a description of grace, and grace is what you need if you're in a revenge fantasy. Grace is what you need. This grace is what you need to escape from revenge fantasies and revenge realities. What Jesus is calling us to is something beyond the two-dimensional zero-sum game of you took what's mine, I'm going to take what's yours. Um, he actually calls us to a miracle. 
And the miracle goes something like this. Death comes against love and wounds it. And in that place of wounding, a miracle happens. New life happens. And out of that wound comes forgiveness and grace and new life and restoration. That's a miracle that happened in the cross, and it happens over and over and over again in the lives of people who receive the grace of the cross and pass that grace along to others who have wronged them. God says it's not just, and no one's pretending it is, and we need systems of justice. We need a court of law. We need, we need, uh, we need uh, enforcement of the law. We need people to experience the consequence of their actions, for sure. But I'm going to bring comprehensive justice in my new kingdom through my pain. I'm going to take the pain on myself. This is not referring to staying a victim in a situation that you need to get out of. This does not refer to trusting people who aren't trustworthy. That's not what this is about. This is about finding the freedom of the soul, the grace to forgive somebody who has done a wrong against you or the people that you love. This is a virtuous cycle. And so when Jesus refers to, hey, someone slaps you on, 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 on the cheek, turn your other cheek, let him slap the other one as well. If, if she's trying to take your cloak, uh, take your cloak, give your tunic as well. There is something undermining about this. There's something joyful about this. Imagine this not as a, a series of duties. He's giving you a new reality to live by. A new reality where you offer grace and forgiveness to those who are taking from you. And what happens is the culture changes, relationships are restored, and the kingdom comes about. The kingdom of God, which operates from a different set of rules. The kingdom of God, which is ultimately and fully just and loving. In the process, the old order gets undermined and itself put to shame. You want to put me to shame by slapping me on the cheek? I'm, I'm going to put your revenge cycle to shame by giving you my other cheek and in, uh, in so doing, give you my love as well. See, in the cross, Jesus pays. Jesus takes the injustice upon himself, and it's injustices not only that others have perpetuated, but that we've perpetuated as well. We have wronged other people. And it's harder for us to see that than the wrongs that we've received. It really is harder for us to see that. But once we see we have participated in injustice... And we have wronged God, and there is metaphorical or literal blood that cries out from the ground against us. There is a better word that cries out for us. The blood of Abel cried out against Cain. And the blood of our sin cries out against us. But the blood of Jesus cries out. Hebrews says it speaks a different word. It cries out for our forgiveness. It cries out for us to be restored. And it speaks louder and cries louder than the the cry of revenge, the cry of eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Here's the third cycle of the logic of grace. Go free. Go free. Get out of the prison of revenge and bitterness. Run free. <laughs> you don't have to live behind those bars. You don't have to live, you don't have to complete a false story of revenge. Based on the fact that you are forgiven, you can forgive other people. And so we can then begin to exercise our imagination in the process of forgiveness. Just like we would exercise our body for fitness, it would feel uncomfortable, it would feel frustrating perhaps. Nevertheless, it's the best thing for our body. Similarly, for our imaginations, it's the best thing for our imaginations. 
to exercise them in the process of forgiveness. You want to know more about this process? I, uh, I brought a book to show you. It's called Forgiveness is a Choice by Robert Enright. Forgiveness is a Choice. You want to borrow it from me? Um, come and, 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 and ask and just I'll let you borrow it. Or you can get it from Amazon for a fairly cheap price. Um, so revenge is junk food for the imagination. Forgiveness uh, is not only good for our imagination, it sets our whole life free from a cycle that never ends. Um, here's what Tim Keller says about what you can do to engage your imaginations um, in the process of grace. He says this, don't continually replay the tapes of the wrong in your imagination in order to keep the sense of loss and hurt fresh so that you can stay actively hostile towards the person and feel virtuous by contrast. Don't vilify or demonize the offender in your imagination. Rather, recognize the common sinful humanity you share with him or her. Don't root for them to fail. Don't hope for their pain. You see, we can imagine ourselves restored to that person. We can even imagine them restored to God in our imaginations. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? The people that have hurt us, the people that have slighted us, the people that have took from us, we can imagine them being made whole and being made right in the presence of God. We can imagine ourselves restored to them as well, whether in this life or the next. We can begin and then to pray for that reality as well, to pray that image that God has given us for that person. Um, C.S. Lewis says this, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And I just, I, I want to challenge you this morning that if you are living in bitterness, if you have a small or a large revenge fantasy happening over and over again, I really want to challenge you to take action against it because sin is crouching at your door and desires to devour you and repeat itself in you and become like a virus that you're just, you're just the host for this virus to continue and perpetuate itself. Go to a prayer minister and, and, and confess this fantasy of revenge. Go to someone that you know that you trust that will pray with you. I would be happy to pray with you after the service. Take action against revenge fantasies um, and step into the logic of grace which is that God sees the injustice God receives pain to make the injustice right and then he sets us free um, there was another real person who was in prison uh, like Edward Dantes uh, it was uh, very unjust although this man was no saint himself his name is Nelson Mandela and he was put in prison for 26 years um, not a completely innocent guy but there was a whole lot of injustice that went into him being put in prison. He was not allowed to attend the funerals of his son or his mother while he was in prison. Um, now, something happened in prison. His imagination was thinking about revenge. Um, and then God called his imagination to begin uh, the process of forgiveness. And um, he began thinking about his, his guards. He began thinking about their life. He began thinking about himself in restored relationship with his guards, which were an embodiment of the apartheid system, which separated blacks and whites and, uh, and gave whites a whole lot of unfair advantages um, and, and took those advantages away from, from, the, uh, from the black South African community. And, um, and he said he, when he left prison after 26 years, he also left the prison of resentment. He, intentionally, he left it behind. He had gone through the process of forgiveness. And he would say later, he would say, as I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, 
I knew that if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. And then he said, resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. Drinking the juice of schadenfreude, which is so delicious going down, but it turns us into a shadow of ourself, destroys our life and the lives of others. And the result was there was real change. You see, when Nelson Mandela was released from prison, there was real societal change. There was all kinds of justice that happened in real life in real South Africa as a result of this one man's imagination being renewed from the inside out. That is why it is so important because the window that, where you can look at, the mountain is real and the river is real, but your justice fantasy is not. The Lord calls us out of that place We would turn in on ourselves, turn in on our fellow man and woman, and turn away from the presence and the love of the living God. This morning he calls us to go from that fantasy to his reality, which will set us free and will bring order and life and justice to the world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.